time in God's Word is, again, in the Gospel according to Mark. We're still in the first chapter. We're looking at verses 14 through 20. I want to ask you to imagine for just a minute uh, what you would do if all of a sudden you were commissioned uh, to come up with a revolutionary group, a group that would, in the words of Acts 17, 6, turn the world upside down. If you were given the responsibility of bringing about a great revival, a great renewal, a great movement, a a new religion, as it were, how would you go about it? Would you uh, begin by going to the universities? Going to the seminaries? Would you go to the mega churches? Would you go to businesses and find out how do you do viral marketing? How do you do all these, these things that get Coca-Cola and Xerox and all the major corporations, Apple and Hyundai? How, how is it that they are able to, to get their product out there and to revolutionize things in the world of business? Do you take that and then apply it to God's Word? Do you apply it then to faith? Do you use it, the methods of the world? Do you use the... The, the wisdom of man. Well, I think about the words of John Wesley. Here, here was the prayer that, that John Wesley said. He said it publicly, but he said it in this way. He says, give me 100 men who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God, and I care not one whit whether they be clergymen or laymen, but they alone will shake the gates of hell and set up a kingdom of heaven upon the earth. A hundred men. That was Wesley's prayer. Give me a hundred men who hate nothing but sin and love nothing or desire nothing more than God. I'm not not interested in, in how well they've been trained. I'm interested in where their heart is. For training can come. Look with me at Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. Read along. I encourage you to keep your Bible open as we spend time in the Word together. This is God's Word for the people of God. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And a little farther... He saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with hired servants, and they followed him. Almighty God, thank you for your word and how it is sharper than any two-edged sword. May it be that means by which you do divine surgery on us today, changing our lives, upsetting our world, Father, that we might know the joy of the world to come. We praise you for your word. May it dwell with us richly. For Jesus' glory and in his name, amen. I talked to you about Mark being uh, really a rapid-fire gospel. The word immediately appearing some 40-plus times, and we see it even here in the text. Immediately, uh, they left and followed Jesus. But it says that the time, uh, now when after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee and said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Interesting, the time becomes the, the thing that Jesus mentions. Now, one thing that Mark doesn't bring out here in this text 
is if we look at the complementary stories that are told in the other synoptic gospels, really actually a year has taken place since last time we gathered together. This past week, with all of its Thanksgiving festivities and all, may seem like a year with traveling and everything, but, but in the text that we studied last week, talking about the baptism and the temptation of Jesus, nearly a year has taken place. Jesus has gone back to Galilee. He went to Jerusalem for the Passover. And then he's traveling up north through Samaria. But Mark picks up here with Jesus as he's back in Galilee. I like Dr. Derek Thomas in speaking about this. He makes a lot of the fact that God is not in a hurry. Last, last week we saw Jesus baptized, Jesus tempted, and, and now it's another year. It's a year from really when you heard the voice of God saying, this is my son, my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And here where he is on the scene preaching and proclaiming the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Dr. Derek Thomas says, God is not in a hurry. There is an urgency in the ministry. Today is the day, but God's time is perfect. And so we begin looking at this. It says, the time has come to be. We're going to see the time has come to be a citizen of God, and the time has come to be a child of the king. These are the first two points we see in this message here. The time is fulfilled. Now, there's two words that will be used in the New Testament for time. Two different Greek words that have two different meanings. One of them is chronos. We think about chronology, right? That's minutes and seconds, tick-tock, tick-tock. That's one way of looking at time. But the word here, and we see it in several other places, in in, uh, Galatians we see it uh, when it says, when the time was right, the time was fulfilled, God sent his son. Right here it says, Jesus is saying the time is fulfilled. The word there is kairos. And and what it means is the right moment, the, the opportunity. You see, the gospel is timely and opportune. It is not sitting there looking and saying, okay, at 8 o'clock will be the time that we share the gospel. At 10.15 is the time we gather for worship, and at 11.30 we should be done worshiping now. No, that's, that's not what we're talking about here, saying that the time is right, that this is the opportunity, this is the moment. And Jesus said, the moment is here. And why? The moment is here because I am here. And so that's what we, we see. First off, he talks about the kingdom of God is at hand. We begin by thinking about what we refer to as the already and the not yet of the gospel. The already and the not yet. Jesus speaks about the kingdom of God, the fulfillment of God's plan, His decree, His rule, God's sovereignty. Now, we ask ourselves, is Jesus Christ today ruling and reigning? Yes. Yes, He is. He is the one who always leads us in triumph. Are we saved? Are we secure? Are we loved? Are we kept? Do we know eternal life? These things are accomplished because God has said so, and in His perfection over all things, He said, yes, this is true, but we still wait. There's the truth that we already know that we experience, that we trust in, that we know is a certainty, but yet we also anticipate what is to come. We wait for the fullness. We wait for the fulfillment. So what Jesus is saying here. He says, the kingdom of God, this is the time the kingdom of God is at hand. And he expresses, this is the opportune moment to repent and to believe. That is a message that we need to take with us always. We do so often focus on the chronos, though, don't we? What time is Jesus coming back? When will that happen? You know, there was the 
There's a book that was written. I don't even remember the exact context of the, the, the book uh, other than the, the title was essentially the, the 84 reasons that God is coming back in 1984, that Jesus is coming back in 1984, right? And it didn't happen. And the, and the publisher didn't see anything wrong with issuing a revision to the book when the, the next edition came out and said the 85 reasons he's coming in 85. We, we seem very preoccupied about looking, wanting to know the date and the time. We, uh, we find that fascinating for some reason, that some Aztec calendar is going to explain to us how, how Jesus is going to come back at a certain date, a certain time. And what Jesus is proclaiming is not the date and the time, for he even says later that those in his human mind he did not know. That's a mystery of the incarnation right there. But, but the time is right. The opportunity is now. The, the time has come. It's the right time to repent. And to believe. And he speaks about this idea of the kingdom. And Jesus will talk about the kingdom again and again and again. I love the way Frederick Buechner talks about the kingdom of God. He says this, If we only had eyes to see, if we only had ears to hear and wits to understand, then we would know that the kingdom of God in the sense of holiness, goodness, beauty, is as close as breathing and is crying out, to be born both within ourselves and within this world. We would know that the kingdom of God is what we all hunger for above all other things, even when we don't know its name or realize that it's what we're starving to death for. The kingdom of God is where our best dreams come from and our truest prayers. We glimpse it at those moments when we find ourselves being better than we are and wiser than we know. We catch sight of it when at some moment a crisis that there's a strength that seems to come to us that's greater than our own strength. The kingdom of God is where we belong. It's our home, whether we realize it or not. It's what we are homesick for. He's speaking about the kingdom of God. He's speaking about what is ultimately and perfectly our home. Simply put, when Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, he is saying... I am here. I had a, a, a dear friend, and I was pastoring several, several years ago, that was very, very concerned because when he read Re- Revelation, it said that in the new heaven and the new earth, there will be no more sea. And he loved to fish. And he said, will there be fishing in heaven? Well, we talked a little bit about what it meant to, to, the, to the Jews to hear that there was no more sea, the uncertainty of the sea, the, the scary, the, the idea of they were, the Jews were not a seafaring people. Uh, but we talked about this idea about fishing. And I was able to say to this, this brother who was legitimately concerned because there are a few things in this world he liked better than fishing. I said, I'd, I've not been privileged to peer behind the curtain and see exactly what will take place for all eternity other than praising God, but rest assured that what you will be doing for all eternity, you would not want to do anything else. It is the fulfillment of that perfect fondness and love, the desire that we, we, we wait for, we long for. When we, when we find our desires, when we find our expectations, when we find all these things unfulfilled in this world, they are prefer- perfectly fulfilled in the presence of Jesus. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, I am here. Because essentially what defines a kingdom? What is it that defines a kingdom? What do you have to have to have a kingdom? Somebody want to answer it? 
a king. There we go. You can't have a kingdom without a king. And what Jesus is saying is the king has come. The king is here. But, but there's more to it. More, more to the fact that we are not simply a citizen of that kingdom, but we are a child. We are a child of the king. Jesus speaks of the message here when he says, The time has come, the kingdom of God is at hand. So what does that do? Jesus' presence prompts a response. And the right response of those who the Spirit is at work in is that we would repent and we would believe. Repent and believe. So what is this repentance of which he speaks? The Westminster Confession, the, the Shorter Catechism, says it this way, repentance unto life. What is it? It's a saving grace. It's a saving grace where a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, he does with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it unto God, that he would with full purpose endeavor after a new obedience. That is, that we would hate our sin, that we would grieve over our sin, and the more that we think about our sin, the more it grieves us, and that we would seek to live to God's righteousness, endeavor after a new obedience, that we would turn. It is that U-turn, where you're heading in the wrong direction, and you, you turn. You turn in a righteous way. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, if you flip over there with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Look at these verses with me as I read. Think about what's happened. Paul has written, actually, we believe this to be his third letter to the Corinthian church. There's one that has not survived, that it was written uh, that by the Holy Spirit. It was not to be retained, to be part of the canon. Uh, Paul refers to this as his harsh letter. Now, if you go back and you read 1 Corinthians, there's some pretty harsh words that he had to the sin that was going on there in Corinth. But he speaks about the, the letters that he's written, and the response that they evoked. Second Corinthians 7, 9 and 10, he says, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regard, without regret, excuse me, whereas worldly grief produces death. He's not talking about simply grieving, not simply just feeling guilty and thinking that there's some sort of, of value in simply feeling guilty over your sins. We can die in our guilt. We can be burdened with guilt until that day we die and find no relief in eternity. Unless it is that godly grief of saying that I recognize that this sin is not the answer. That we would repent and but then Jesus says this too. He says, repent and believe. Well, what is, what is belief? Belief, it's faith. It's trusting. It's a saving grace wherein we receive and rest upon Jesus Christ alone for salvation, just as he's offered in the gospel. Not according to our plans, not according to the way that we would craft it and design it, but God's message bringing about God's salvation in us, God's children. It's like breath. It's like breath, that we would have that breath of eternal life, that we would inhale and exhale it. What do we exhale? We exhale the sin. We exhale that which kills, that which can't sustain life. We repent of it. We get rid of it. And we inhale. That is faith, that which gives eternal life, that which strengthens us. We, we read God's word. We know the means of grace whereby we're strengthened and our faith grows. This is the message. It's simple. It's plain. And we have to be focused on it. Jesus says the kingdom is here. What does that mean? That Christ is a reality. Christ is here. Christ must be addressed. 
And how do we address that? We recognize that our sinful ways are not the answer. That we turn and we follow as he has proclaimed the simple gospel message. We try to make it too complicated. We get bogged down in in all sorts of peripheral questions. But, But the plan of God, his message and his method is this. The gospel is there and what do we do? We proclaim it, we preach it, we make it known. One pastor said it's very simple. God had one son, and he was a preacher. And God had one method, and that was preaching. That is that we would, we would preach the simple message in the way we live and the way that we speak, everything that we say and everything that we do. Now, what about these men that God has called through Jesus to be those who would bear witness to that generation and become those who would establish the, the, the true faith? Who would be used? Now, like I said, if you were designing this in this time, would you not go to the folks that had access to the seats of higher learning, that had access to all the ability to write and to record these things, uh, to make them known the famous? A.W. Tozier talks about that. He says that the church needs to be warned that we too often seek after sparklers. I like this. He says... We need to be aware of positions of influence that we place people in who are sparklers. That is, people with personality and charm, people who are good lookers. The thing about sparklers is this. On the 4th of July, we see them, and they only last for a minute or two, and then they're gone. Jesus doesn't call sparklers. He calls men of rugged determination. He calls them because of their character. He calls them because he sees something in them that you that you and I perhaps would not have seen. We need to be encouraged as we see those that Christ called to be His disciples. Can we not see much of ourselves in the impetuousness, the quick-tempered nature of, of, of Simon? His mouth must have been permanently shaped like a foot because he was always the one, the first one to speak, the first one to say the wrong thing. Or how about James and John, those sons of thunder, loud, boisterous, always arguing, saying, Jesus... Tell my brother, which of us is going to sit closer to you in the kingdom? Yet the Holy Spirit sanctified them and sanctifies us to a calling and a life beyond our natural inclinations. And so the time has come to be, we, we see that the time was right, the Kairos was right to be a citizen of the kingdom, a child of the king, but also to become followers of Jesus. A follower of Jesus. What does Jesus say here as he calls him? He says, he passed along beside the Sea of Galilee. He saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he speaks about fishing three different times here, speaking about he saw that they were fishermen, he called them to be fishers and men, and he saw that, they, that which were they engaged in, not only uh, uh, Andrew and Simon, but also James and John, was fishing and all the peripheral work of fishing. It, Simon and And Andrew, they were fishermen by trade, right? So were James and John. Question for you this morning. How was it that James and John would have become fishermen? Now, we're not talking about going and getting your Zebco and putting a worm on it and going and sitting with your cooler soft drinks in the shade of a tree casting into the side of the pond for a few minutes just to enjoy a beautiful Saturday afternoon. That's not what they did. These were men whose hands were torn with the nets as they would cast into the sea. These were men whose lives, very livelihoods, depended on the produce that they brought back, that which came out of the sea, to go back to feed their families and to sell 
Th these were men who depended, their lives depended on fishing. And how did they learn to fish, James and John? From Zebedee. And what did they do? They grew up. They spent time with him. They went out in the boat with him. And what is Jesus calling them to do now? Come learn to be fishermen of men from me. You see, they would have learned their trade. They would have learned their trade by walking with their dad. And now they learn their ministry by walking with the master. By watching him heal, by watching him preach, by watching him teach. By seeing him embrace the children, engage the woman at the well. They would become fishers of men by fishing with Jesus. And that's what we're doing here. And I encourage you that in your study of God's word throughout this time when we study Mark, and always, let us always return and walk with the master to see Jesus and to learn from those who walked with him, to learn from Paul, to learn from Peter, to learn from all those who walked and learned. May we be fishers of men. It shouldn't surprise us that Jesus, his first call to discipleship, was to call them to become evangelists. He, he is coming and saying, the kingdom is here. We need to proclaim it. We need to make it known. We need to spread this good news. Say, come with me, and I will show you how you make this known. I will teach you to proclaim this message and empower you to do so. And what is this message? It is repent and believe and to be focused on Jesus. The time has come to become followers of Christ, to follow with Him, to walk with Him, to be fishers of men, and to perfectly be focused on Him. Now, it was not a sign of disrespect. If you look here in the text, it said immediately of James and John, immediately Jesus called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat. You know, when you read that and, and Mark's fast-paced way of presenting it, it's almost like, oh, see you, Dad. It's, it's almost like there's a, a disrespectful moment there, and, and that's not the way it's to be read. It's not this idea that they are just uh, dispensing with their father and showing him no due respect. We see right there it says that he was left there in with the servants, that, that theirs was an established business and the father was cared for and the father would be able to continue. But immediately it says, immediately it says when the king called upon them, they responded, they said yes. They did not make excuses. This is the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus. How would you begin a great move Today, would you go out and you find the sparklers of this world? Would you go and look for the best and the brightest and say, these are people that God can really use? Or would you recognize that, that, that God calls us and He equips us and He uses simple men and women like us of meager means, of, of humble abilities to do amazing things? Why? Why does He do that? We saw that last week in the the marching around Jericho, the most unlikely battle plan ever. But it was undeniable when the walls came down that it was the power of God and not the strength of Israel that defeated the men and women of Jericho. It's all of God and not of us. We're going to see the pattern of Jesus. He, he ministers, he preaches to thousands. We see him having direct ministry with hundreds. He commissions 72 to go out. He has that close fellowship with 12, and he even has a special closeness to three, Peter, James, and John. This, this is his method. It's his method that we would, we would reproduce ourselves and others, that we would minister and we would raise up others. How do we become fishers of men? Well, 
we, we learn from Jesus. We learn from other fishers. How do we go and make fishers of men? We bid them to come. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul tells Timothy, and we close with this. Now ask yourself, are you in this Advent season uh, doing this? As Paul is instructing Timothy, so he instructs us. 2 Timothy 2, 2. Paul says, the things that you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That we ought to be in that ministry of reproduction. Ought to be in that ministry of going and making disciples. Fishing and knowing a great, great increase for God's kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand. The king is here with us. And the king bids us to come, to rejoice, and to proclaim that the gospel is true. Repent and believe and be saved. Pray with me. Almighty God, we do worship and adore you. We praise you that we live in a day where you are at work. Forgive us, Lord God, for doubting your presence, for doubting your power, doubting your desire. Father, make us to be those who long to walk with you, our master, and to invite others to come along, to say, follow me, come with me as we follow Jesus together. Father, the time is right. The opportunity is now. Would you use us this day for your glory? May we repent of our sins. May we believe more and more. And may we do so that the kingdom of God would be made known to every tribe and tongue. Would you begin right here in this place? And may it be to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.